0: I've seen it fade, Uh, (laughs) I've seen it fade. I've seen it fade and I've seen it be successful. Partnership programs are not something that happens overnight. So the first thing you need to really like digest is that there's gonna be a lot of people capital and effort you're gonna put into the whole program. The goal is to establish the program and there's gonna be a lot of sales calories within that program, right? So you have to, First, digest the partnerships that you want to focus on, that are really, truly the right partners for that company that you're trying to build the partnerships for. Once you've established that, um, it's really about network. It's you know, partnerships are not, it's not over complicated, You know, I think um, to get somebody in that seat to be, like, wh- whether you're selling into manufacturers and you have a manufacturing supply chain product or what you know or if you're selling to the office of the cfo or if you're selling into the office of the cro coo chief customer officer whatever that software provider that you're trying to build a partnership with you need to bring somebody in from that industry that is key
1: you're looking to grow your B2B business? Welcome to the Grow B2B Faster podcast. Here, we dig deep to learn proven growth strategies, hacks, and tools from top CEOs and leaders in sales and marketing to help you grow faster. This episode is powered by Sawoo, the company that can help you drive thought leadership, hiring, and sales for your B2B business via LinkedIn. Check them out on sawoo.io, s a w o o.io.
2: I'm happy to welcome Sean Green, who is Go-To-Market Advisor um, at Upflow and Chassie, Investor at the Stage 2 Capital Fund and who had several uh, leading sales roles at SaaS companies over the course of his career. Sean, welcome to our show.
0: Thanks for having
2: me. (laughs) Uh, Well, the pleasure is all ours. Um, Please give us a short recap of, of your sales career and the stations that you had.
0: Sure. Um when I graduated uh, I went to University of Massachusetts played soccer there. Um I tried to play professionally but I was more of a utility cool. player realized pretty quickly uh hopping around from you know oh, minor league. Wait wait a teams. second
2: wait a second. Yeah. Do, do you have a favorite soccer club? Of course. Which we song? never
0: walk alone. Liverpool. Alone. Ah! So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, so the uh,
2: Germans but, didn't make it. <laughs>
0: uh, no, no, but I'm a big Munich fan too. So um, okay, that's big, acceptable big,
2: now. Yeah, we, we yeah. keep you on the show now.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would, I would have found a utility role in Germany because you guys all have utility roles over there. But uh, unfortunately, here a lot of teams just need one utility center midfielder who is a defensive sit, like just more of a the wall for the for the team. So. I realized pretty quickly after a year out of college that that wasn't for me. And I, I got into, um, I got into sales early. I, I, I graduated with a sports management degree. I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I was, I'm like one of the first, uh, out of 70 cousins that went to college. So it was kind of like, I don't come from, you know, the college life. So, uh, I was just happy to graduate really. And I got into sales through, um, we did a bunch of, um, campaigns directly for the NFL for direct TV and NFL Sunday ticket. Awkward. And then I moved over to London to work with, uh, the EPL channels, English primarily channels. These were all in my twenties. So I'm like, my twenties was really where I, I learned how to sell, um, had a lot of good mentors. Uh, it was kind of my, my own business. And I, kind of grew both businesses and and sold them uh in my late 20s so i didn't really get into software SaaS until i got to back to boston when i left london um and i came back and i i took some time off i'm a big snowboarder so i you know jumping out of helicopters and all that crazy stuff so i had to get that out of my system and joined um a little company in, in Boston at the time, uh, Art Pappas was the CEO who was running it. And he had this this vision of this, this world of SaaS. And this was before, this was with a lot of on-prem technology. And he's like, Sean, it's the future. And I'm like, okay, tell me more. So uh, I started from the ground up again um, after doing everything I did in my 20s just to learn the industry. Um, I was at Bullhorn, and then I went to Oracle, the mothership, realized it wasn't for me after two years, uh, went back to a startup, uh, a little company called OpenAir, which was the first professional service automation tool that was completely in the cloud for professional service organizations. Um, I uh, cut my teeth running the enterprise uh, team there. We got acquired by NetSuite. And this is at the time where people didn't really know what NetSuite was, it was kind of, you know, You know, people used to say like, what what company you work for now, Netscope, you know, if you remember back in the day that that was a thing. And um, Netsuite just went public. Uh, I was employed like 200 when when we got acquired. Um, I was there all the way through the acquisition of Oracle where we were about 6,000 people. So... I really kind of learned everything about SaaS and selling B two B value based uh, sales cycles through NetSuite. Um, I was I was brought in to bring in the Open Air community, which was all enterprise, and NetSuite at the time was all SMB mid market, and uh, the C suite wanted to go up market, so they had to build technology. Open Air was one of those technologies that allowed us to get into these big companies to sell an ERP into a lot of the subsidiaries. So we kind of went from the ground up. So the way we won business in the enterprise over the years I was there was we would, uh, a lot of big companies have subsidiaries on different ERPs. We would win the subsidiary business. And then eventually when they went to RFP for their main ERP, we would be in the conversation, which was unheard of before. Um, We didn't win them all. But the ones we did win, we learned a lot. Uh, we we learned from our customers in the enterprise space. A uh, lot of big names that you hear now all started on NetSuite, um, even at an earlier stage when they were more of a mid-market software company or uh, services or account. You know, or like a manufacturing, wholesale, distribution company. We had um, we had about eight verticals. Every vertical was specific for that, uh, for that specific ERP, for the challenges that those companies were facing. And we grew that business, you know, by the time we got acquired, we were a billion in revenue, um, ARR, uh, not too many acquisitions, like we only had three acquisitions. So it wasn't, it was more organic growth. Um, we realized that we needed to land and expand so as we started to sell into the enterprise, we'd start off with just the financials and then start selling other modules on top of that to get those customers more sticky. But we also partnered with some great partners like Avalara when Avalara was like 50 people. And what it, kind of you company know, is that? Uh, Avalara is like, a, is, is a tax, uh, is a tax software. We didn't mm-hmm. want to be in that space. So we built out this beautiful, um, suite development network, which is kind of like compared to like the force.com platform with all the different vendors that partner with Salesforce. We did the same thing at NetSuite. Um, it's just cool to see both those companies just go in those directions and they learn from each other. Um, so it was great. Well, I was there for uh, several years. I learned a lot. Um, I ended up, uh, leaving, uh, I didn't want to go back to Oracle. And it's funny, I talk to everybody now and it's, it's still its own GBU, like Global Business Unit. And they've done a really good job like trying to maintain the culture that we built there. Um, and the culture was customers come first. It, it was that easy. Um, it didn't have to overcomplicate it. Uh, we had beautiful customer advisory boards. We learned from every industry. Uh, we built specifically on the industry. Um, but when we got bought by Oracle, Oracle wanted to go back down market. They wanted to sell their larger ERP, their fusion ERP to the larger companies. And I just kind of knew the writing was in the wall and I didn't want to be a part of going back down market after we did all this work to go up market. So anyways, I I left to go work for Blackline. We're in their strategic team in North America. Um, Blackline is a continuous accounting, Uh, again, still in the office of the CFO. I have a very soft spot in my heart for the office of the CFO because I've literally seeing that change over the last 20 years from a cost center to more of a value-added partner to all the other business units, which is very important today since cash is so, you know, expensive.
1: Oh, and, nowadays for you sure. know,
0: yeah, so it's pretty cool seeing that evolution. And I also, it was at NSV when nobody wanted to put their financials in the cloud. Now, if you're not putting your financials in the cloud, you're kind of behind schedule. Um, so, uh, went to Blackline and we really landed some very beautiful big companies on Blackline. Started off again, land and expand where we started them off with a journey with account reconciliations to bring in all their like big, co- I'm talking Fortune 100 companies that needed to standardize their, their closed process and try to shrink their closed process from like, Thirteen days down to six days, and they did that on Blackline. It was uh, ERP agnostic software. It was, you know, it 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 basically pulled data from all the different ERPs, and it really allowed the um, the financial close to build out like a center of excellence on how to how to decrease their close process. So once we got them on re- uh, power reconciliations, we moved them into we went into journals. We brought the journals into the closed process, and then once we got the closed process from journals to account reconciliations, we started going to intercompany and treasury, and really started putting the entire uh, finance team on Blackline. and And that's why today they're they're a unicorn company. They're fantastic, culture's awesome. My former boss um, at Netsuite is now the CEO at Blackline, uh, and they're just doing phenomenal things. Um, then I went to, I, uh, I wanted to run a global P so I ended up moving to like the the new Open Air, which was a professional service automation tool. I went to a company called Mavenlink. Mavenlink was fantastic, uh, beautiful culture. Uh, we uh, we did some incredible things um, at the time. You know, we were uh, competing with you know a lot of uh, platform vendors like if you if you look at just Mavenlink just for your services it was the ferrari of the service organization for their software um, you know when we we were doing very well we raised a series c we were you know tremendous growth and um we we hit some bumps in the road once COVID hit when it when it came to like really trying to sell into the enterprise because there was a lot of like let's hurry up and wait we're not sure um, you know, a lot of RFPs were, were won, but they were put on pause and long story short, it was the first time in my life. I, I, you know, uh, voluntarily resigned from any position because we had such a astronomical number to hit. And, you know, the company was doing the right thing for the companies, um, for the growth and all those different things. And, uh, today they, they merged with, um, Kimble, which was one of our competitors and in, in Europe. Um, it was great because I got to travel all over the place before COVID hit, restructured a bunch of teams, um, really got a good operating rhythm going. I'm, I'm a huge fan of MedPix and, and force management, command of the message. So we, we established a lot of that in the enterprise uh, space, which was good. Uh, today, they're called Cantana or um, something like that. They merged both companies. KKR came in from a private equity perspective, um, but I still... Feel in my gut if 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 things didn't work out, it it was just a beautiful company. It was Mm -hmm. uh, it still is. It's still still a lot of um, foundation there that that has a lot more growth ahead of them. Um, I took some time off. I I joined another startup. Um, in an industry I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I just you know I knew how to build teams. Um, so I helped them literally take their Series A and build, uh, an entire go-to-market team on a global scale from Singapore over to the Europe, uh, all virtually all through COVID. Um, you know, I, I, I have a pretty good network and, um, we, uh, we did some great things. Um, I think they were still trying to figure out their product market fit before, you know, I came into the the picture, they didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't have the go-to-market team. So. We we established that. We had leaders in each one of those segments from the channel segment to customer success to um, solution consulting. We called it advisory. And then we had a BDR team. We built a sales team. I had a revenue ops team. We had a marketing team. The marketing team focused on product marketing and demand generation uh we had leaders over in europe i had one leader that was actually doing the same concept in the us a lot of our customers were here in the us um we won some great opportunities over the year um and then i just realized you know the the company it was built um and they unfortunately you know they we had a great like we us and them like me and them we we just knew that they hired me too early to to scale it um you know and that goes into some of the questions we're gonna uh talk about today when it comes to establishing product market fit go-to-market strategy and a repeatable sales cycle and the three levels that you'll see in startups from a ceo perspective um just recently i've Just uh, over the last two years, uh, have been consulting back into my sweet spot, which is the office of the CFO and technology, because I've seen I've seen almost everything. And I'm a go to market advisor to the CEOs of both those companies, um, establishing partnerships, establishing, you know, how to stay super laser focused on one specific thing instead of, you know, Having a broad view, because a lot of startups that do that can get very lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I joined uh, well, a good friend of mine who was the uh, CRO of HubSpot, took them public this year in January. I joined Stage Two Capital, and where I'm in the more I'm more focused on the accelerator program, which is the pre-A uh, Series A round uh, of establishing like a good foundation to get to a million in recurring, uh, or 2 million in recurring. So these companies are all getting fantastic go to market advisors when it comes to recruiting, sales, technology, marketing, uh, services. Um, there's, uh, you know, a good handful of, you know, 30 advisors for these accelerator program, uh, companies, and we have. I think we just brought in a close to fifteen or sixteen companies that we're advising, and it's all throughout the board. So there's a lot of uh, product like growth companies, which we think is going to be the future, which will disrupt B two B sales at some point. Um, And then also we have like uh, you know software that that takes care of like uh, you know convenience stores, (laughs) like things that just. Nobody really thinks of that. Now we're starting to come out and creating it, its own, you know, market fit within the market and building its own market strategy where there's not many competition. So yeah. that's a little background on on Sean Green. Awesome, thanks a lot. What what a carry up to know,
2: um, and. In terms of companies that you're helping right now, can, can you just like really roughly and in, in short, uh, tell us uh, who are the companies that you're advising right now or just uh, like if you don't have to name all of them, just name one, two or three?
0: Sure. Uh, I've advised uh, several over the years, but the two mm-hmm. that I'm mainly focused on right now are chassis and upflow. Uh, one is a uh, full spectrum. Of the account receivable process, which there's a lot of accounts payable products out there, but there's not a lot of account receivable products. Um, there's a lot of, you know, platform products that you know some companies have like Netsuite that really don't do the trick to really decrease the DSO for the company and DSO what, what for is everybody. DSO?
2: for yeah. people who don't know that, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's days sales outstanding.
2: Okay, okay. so.
0: When when an order, or a sales order gets signed, that whole, and, and the beauty of both these companies, it touches the entire DSO. So from a sales order that gets approved and signed in Salesforce goes through the ERP. Um, and then from once it's ready to be invoiced, it's then sent out. So chassis focuses on the first part. And what chassis does is it hyper focuses on where the bottlenecks are in the company. So if there are a ton of sales orders that are coming through, why is it taking 17 days to get an invoice out? For example, why isn't it only taking two days? So it focuses on the entire ecosystem uh, from you know the sales operations team to the finance team. It even touches the sales team because what happens is a lot of reps aren't getting paid their full commissions until the company gets paid and that's the most important part about dso so this gives a full view of okay why is it taking a day to get that sales order into like netsuite for example you have a Celigo integration it should be instant why is it taking a day so we need to fix that okay and then from there it goes through yeah,
2: I have one question there specifically: um, how, how you are helping them? What what are you doing for Chassis, for example, or for Upflow? So as an, I'm, advisor, I'm, as an advisor, yeah.
0: i I'm, I'm an advisor for both companies, and what I focus on is um, how do we establish the product market fit. And for mm-hmm. Chassis, we're doing it in the partner ecosystem mm-hmm. for NetSuite. Um, for Upflow, I'm also they already have a product market fit. I've been working with Alex since you know 2020. And you know, we, we basically sh- worked our way directly to win hundreds of customers. And once we've established those customers, that's where we kind of walked into, okay, now how do we scale, right? We know we have a product market fit and a go-to-market strategy. We're still working on that. A go-to-market strategy is a constant thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's you, know, you, you gotta pivot when things don't work out and it's a constant um, science project is what I would say it is. And we're still working on that. But more importantly, we're building like a repeatable sales cycle for not only the partners that they're trying to get into that will resell their product to their customers, but more importantly, the direct sales teams, the BDRs, the direct sales, building out playbooks that establish the rep to ramp and shrink it so Mm -hmm. when you know that you're starting to see like if you have six sales reps and you're starting to see four that are winning deals month over month you know that that cycle that repeatable sales cycle is working right okay so yeah that goes that goes back to being lean first establish it and then then expand um for chassis it's it's on the other side it's it's basically where upflow was two years ago where small team focusing on okay Here's our product market strategy. We know we have a product market fit. They definitely do, but it's where do we focus our strategy on first so we can establish 100 customers. And from that established 100 customers, we learn from those 100 customers on how we can expand the technology. And, and with Chassis, it, it hyper focuses on the entire DSO process that you are in control of. And so what we what we try to do is put the technology, look at it like it's a chassis, is an MRI machine for the doctor. And the mm-hmm. doctor is the practitioners, whether it's partners, um, a, uh, a team that has managed services that are supporting the customer where they're helping the customer build out a center of excellence or tries to help them drive towards specific SLAs and milestones. And it helps them kind of immediately empirically, um, basically pull the raw data and see the entire landscape, set up goals, set up milestones. And then all they do is just consistently coach them on that. And what that does for the practitioners, because we're the MRI machine, is it allows them to win new business, win new consulting business. It allows them to focus on, and that's all, that's where we're going to start first, because the goal there is to learn from these partners that are selling their services into those com- their their current customers and also winning business, winning new business, which is important too. Um, once we learn from that, once we understand the the uh, ICP of the customer, so ideal what customer profile of the, so to say, yeah, ideal customer profile. And once we start learning from that, so we'll build a cab. Within that organization, within all those partners, I I, well, I want to stop you right it.
2: now because now you yeah. already like picked these points that uh, we will go through um, through um, through the next couple of questions that I have lined up for you um, because I Perfect. like cap is something I remember that will come up for sure and but but we will go back to the examples because it's always nice to on the one hand hear the theory on the other hand hear your hands-on insights maybe even with the practical examples of these two companies or other examples that you have in mind that uh, make it easy to grasp and understand. And the first topic I already, like you just mentioned it, um, and I wanna dive a little bit deeper into it, is the whole um, partnering with other companies to drive sales. Um, so my first question there is, um, at what point um, of a company, um, like from startup to you, you have product market fit to you are a growth company, um, you, until maybe even you are an enterprise company at what stage would you say, does it make sense to start looking for partners and start building like a partner ecosystem?
0: Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately. Um, so if, if, if you look at the partner ecosystem, they have the customers, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're a young startup and you're just muscling your way to win business right? Your CAC is going to be out of control customer acquisition Mm -hmm. cost. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you can establish reseller agreements or partners or referral agreements with specific partners, and I'm not talking the big five or four, right? That's, that's way down the road. You're looking at boutique shops between 20 and 200, 300 person partnership programs and these are the ones that if you can bring value to them so they can bring value to their customers those are the partners that you want to partner with and you have to find specific parts of their business units that tailors your your software to their customers so for for instance this um these two companies they you know the main goal for both of them was to become SDN certified within the NetSuite ecosystem. Cause they both have immediate plugins. They both know that, okay, this is what we want to focus on first. And within that ecosystem, you look for companies that are NetSuite certified partners. And what that means is they have an entire book of business that they're serving NetSuite customers. So that's the start. The second piece is, you got to make sure that you're, you're hyper-focused on the specific part of those partnerships that can drive value for their customers. And that could be, um, sweet success, which is like, uh, you know, the, a, the customer success organization that manages like a portfolio of hundred NetSuite customers. It could be managed services, which is okay. Th- these NetSuite customers are paying this partner, thousands of dollars per year to manage their NetSuite instance and help them optimize and make sure that they don't get, they don't fall behind as they grow. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the two main ones. The other one is um, when companies, uh, when companies grow, they always look at their partners and ask, well, what are other companies doing in our industry? Right. They're ask they're asking for advice. They, They don't have a playbook. So, with these partnerships, they have these center of excellence for the office office of the CFO. So they have these these business units that help build playbooks, understand where their roadmap is going, like what their what their future projections look like, where they need to put bodies, how do they support it, what's their operating rhythm internally from sales, sales operations, finance, invoicing. And- and and billing, accounts receivable, like all of that piece. And these are practitioners in the center of excellence that really focus on not only process, but technology. If you don't marry the two, it doesn't work, right? And then you have to constantly monitor it to make sure as people leave the organization, like at their customers and people start filling in or they just keep growing and they keep hiring bodies, there needs to be some, you know, some sort of playbook or LMS learning management system of some sort to get people ramped up on the system. So mm-hmm. they, they don't, you know, increase their DSO, which is very, it's, it's not a good way to to expand your company. A lot of small companies, they grow so fast. They, they can't really sometimes, uh, know what's in front of them. And and these partnerships in that group will, kind of say here are all the landmines this is where you need to look out for here's how you set yourself up for success so it's center of excellence it's managed services and it's like their customer success which a lot of places a lot of these partners call sweet success uh, organizations
2: Mm -hmm. i try to summarize what i just learned from you so in the end um, even as a young startup, um, it's good to start um, find the right partners. You you more focus on the smaller companies, so for example, twenty to two hundred employees, um, and you you put yourself into the shoe shoes of the partner and and look at wh- what kind of value can I bring to my partner so that they can bring more value to their clients. And, Absolutely. Um, and then um, one important part as well um, make it m- make it efficient to to onboard those partners or I mean partners means people in those companies of course um because if people leave you have to like be able to onboard the next one without a hassle. Um, did I roughly get this right?
0: You got it perfectly right. And the the, the companies that actually uh because there's another part of this right it's mm-hmm. um once once a once the partner sees value in the, in in the product And where that value sits within their ecosystem, there's this whole enablement program that needs to happen. And I think the smart um, software companies that build great partnerships will do free proof of concepts with their customers. Right. And what that means is like, let's take real customers. We will do three free proof of concepts. We'll show them exactly how that software can, can fix some of their pain points and bring you know you know true metrics to what they need to be fixed and once that's established it's real right and and if those customers see value in that through the partner the partner's going to expand it so what we the the goal there is if if there is a lot of tailwind and you're starting to see some customers being like wow this is really a game changer for us like We're starting to see a lot of value in this. There's two options. Um, One is train the trainer. So that software company has a team of CS people or enablers that will help train the trainer and the partners where they can do it themselves. That's the first option. The second thing is you can sell the software through the partnership, right? And what the software provider should do since they want to maintain the relationship with the end customer is literally walk them through okay I'm I'm the software provider I'm going to walk through the partnership we're going to do train the trainer with the partnership and then we're going to train the trainer at the end customer so now you have two champions one at the end customer one with a partner that know this know the technology well and then the best part about that scenario is that in the future, you can skip over the partnership because they're agnostic. I mean, that end customer could go to a different partner, but they're using your technology. So now you have a dedicated person within that software provider managing and helping that end customer through the partnership of of uh, whoever their you know small partnership is.
2: Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, understood. What are the top five advices you give as a go-to-market advisor for someone who wants to start um, the, the sole partnership program? So from, <coughs> sorry, from, um, from finding the right partner to winning the first ones, to getting them on board um, and, 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 and grow this partnership. So what are the top three to five things you see that most should focus on because you also saw maybe sometimes this failing?
0: I've seen a fade. Uh, <laughs> fade. I've seen a fade. I've seen a fade, and I've seen it be successful. Partnership programs are not something that happens overnight. So the first thing you need to really like digest is that there's going to be a lot of people, capital, and effort you're going to put into the whole program. The goal is to establish the program, and there's going to be a lot of sales calories within that program, right? So you have to first digest the partnerships that you want to focus on that are really, truly the right partners for that company that you're trying to build the partnerships for. Once you've established that, um, it's really about network. It's, you know, partnerships are not, it's not overcomplicated, you know, I think um, to get somebody in that seat to, like what, whether you're, selling to manufacturers and you have a manufacturing supply chain product or what you know or if you're selling to the office of the cfo or if you're selling into the office of the cro coo chief customer officer whatever that software provider that you're trying to build a partnership with you need to bring somebody in from that industry that is key mm-hmm. if you don't have that the the the, the outreach is way more cold it's way more cold and it's it's going to take longer to build those relationships and partnerships so you know like i said before you gotta when you're looking at finding some alliance manager to build a partnership um and this is what i'm doing as part of my go-to-market uh, advisor roles for both these companies is i'm bringing in my network um, of people that i've worked with uh for the last 12 years and they all have many connections that I have connections with and yeah, I've either met them in person or I've won deals with them Um, where I'm teeing up, I'm opening the door for these two companies. So for these, for for these, you know, if it's a different industry, like I, I already, I already immediately knew, I'm like, I have 30, these are the 30 companies for your partnerships. Here are the 30 companies for your partnerships. So So I immediately knew what they were.
2: So the, yeah. the, the, the hidden advice basically is find a really good go-to-market advisor <laughs> <laughs> who, who is basically connected within your industry and who can help you speed up everything with the right
0: connections and knowledge. It's, it's, it's about getting the first call, right? If you know you have the product and you know that there is a, a niche within that partnership that can bring value to their customers, that is key. Um, so if you're in a different technology space, my advice is, You find somebody in that world that's been there for 10 years Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: has established relationships. And then as they come in, they start setting up calls and these calls turn into demos demos turn into, okay, let's do a couple free proof of concepts. And then you establish a couple customer base. And then from that customer base, now they're buying licenses. And that's when you do the transaction, right? So the hardest part is transactions. No matter what you do in life um but it's a lot easier when there's value for the transaction and you can actually build a business case return on investment for that partnership to understand like okay if i buy these licenses and i'm going to serve my customers i know i can do five customers per license and i'll be able to give them a full view of their entire dso and give them suggestions on how to shrink that and if you think about DSO, it's very expensive every day you don't get paid.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's
0: very and, and it all hits your P&L, it all hits your payroll, it all, you know, it allows you to get to your cash it, it shrinks your cash burn. It gets you to a break even point or an increased cash flow and increase EBITDA. That is like key for any companies that want to grow that want to raise money is that even venture capital firms now like stage 2 like in the larger stage two flagship, the ones that they give an A, B, or C round to, they look at cash flow and EBITDA. So, Those are the two things. And if you think about that, that used to be just a private equity thing or growth yeah. equity.
2: How things It is changed. now starting. To, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Because the private markets haven't really corrected themselves yet. The public market, I think, has. It's on its way. Um, uh-huh. So there's a lot of unicorns out there that. You know, have raised a lot of money, but they're not at the right ARR for the company. So, yeah, um, yeah.
2: no, re- really great advice already. Um, let's let's jump to a new topic, um, Sean. And um, my, my question now is um, what stages uh, of CEO involvement uh, do you see in, in startups um, over the course or the, the basically the stages that a, a startup goes through?
0: Yeah, um, I've seen uh, pre A all the way through public companies. And what I've what I've learned over the years is, if you're a brand new startup, and you're bootstrapping it, you are the CRO, you're the CEO, you are the COO, you are the CCO, right? So you are leading all the sales conversations, you're actually closing business. And then you're not only closing the business, you're also delivering the business. And then you're trying to make them successful. So you go through that first phase, which is usually definitely pre-A. And it's and it's basically establishing a, 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 a like you, you look at your first 10 customers or 15 customers as advisors back to your company. Mm-hmm. Right. And you listen more than you talk. You can bring insights, but you gotta you gotta listen to your customers on some of the pains you're solving why you're solving them? What are the proof points? How can we expand the technology to help other parts of your organization, right? That gets into the later stage where you have other products you can sell instead of just one point solution. So the first level is a CEO-led sale. The second level is the this uh, the CEO-supported sale, which is um, basically where you start, you hire your first couple AEs, you know, they're out there, you're still on the front line to them. Yeah, account executives, you don't really, you don't really need a manager, you just need to like, get three, three reps, uh, maybe one BDR, maybe two, um, to really get some at bats, you're on all the calls, you're still doing the demos, you're really working through it, um, you might bring in an SC, maybe you hire your first SC to start taking over some of the demos and you start to replace yourself a little bit more. And now you're just supporting the whole sales cycle. Um, and then from there, you know, that, that is like, basically I, in my mind, still pre a it's b- before you raise an a, um, once you get to a ce- uh, CEO influence sale which means you now might have a manager, you have maybe four or five reps, you have a little BDR program, you have established a couple SC folks, um, you have customer success, um, channel. I'm still a firm believer. Like this is probably where you start building a channel for partnerships, um, outside the BDR and the direct business. Um, and that's where you're influencing the sale. You're not closing all the deals. You have your manager who's managing kind of like that uh player coach for the aes you're you want to get those aes established and like you know look at the end of the day not everyone is going to work out but if you can get 70 percent of your aes hitting numbers on a monthly basis that's when you start seeing oh my god now we have a repeatable sales cycle and you start and see some consistency one of the biggest fears for a lot of people that raise money is do you have a repeatable forecast? Do you have a operating rhythm that works where you have predictability with your revenue? Like, so the three levels are the CEO led sale, the CEO supported sale, the CEO influence sale. And then from there, that's where you, in my mind, where you would go and raise that first round and that because you have an established go-to-market, you figured out your go-to market product, you're still working on your go-to-market strategy. It's it's a constant thing. Cause as you grow, your go-to-market strategy is constantly changing. I, I don't I don't believe in it, like, oh I nailed my go-to market strategy and I'm done. It's like, no, yeah. it's like it's a constant moving thing. Um and then once you get into that, you know, support the uh, influence sale from a CEO perspective then let's go raise some money. Let's like build out a bigger marketing team. Um, still go lean on the sales because the goal is to make them successful. So you can build a good culture, uh, lead by diversity. Don't just hire a bunch of men, just like, you know, diversify as early as you can because that builds a great foundation for the culture. And once you start seeing some of the, the goodness that's happening, the repeatability, then you can start adding more headcount. Um, to grow but what, what I hate to see is when people raise all this money they're like oh my god I gotta hit these targets so fast I need to be at a hundred percent you know each year over year I'm just gonna hire a bunch of bodies and do it it's like no it, it, that doesn't work you need playbooks you need product market uh, marketing you need social you need you need all these things to build the top of the funnel before you start hiring all these people because the worst is when you hire you know say 10 AEs you already have five, you hired another five, and they don't have the pipeline to have those at-bats to get better, It, it it's it's demoralizing. So yeah. I like the lean sale, but add some additional um, supporting self sales functions, like the channel uh, marketing. Um, I love revenue operations, because at that point you gotta start analyzing your pipeline, your sales progression. Why is it still, why do we have so many in state sales stage two versus first three, why isn't anything moving? Let's like, look at this, like, should we change the way we're marketing our product goes back to, you know, product market strategy. So I'm a big firm believer in invest in those two groups, uh, three groups. Um, And then from there, it's it's still it's it's still a slug. It
2: to get to ten million, it never it never stops. Seems like it never stops. Let's go through these uh, stages of a startup. Um, You you already touched on some points, but um, let's let's focus on each separately because I think you have great insights for each one of those steps. So the first one um, or stages, I mean, the first stage is um, pre-product market fit, Um, but but I, I'm really curious, how do you define product market fit?
0: I define product market fit, there's two types. One, if there's a new category, that's really hard, right? If there's a new category and it could be a subvertical of a category, that's one of the hardest. Like that, that was NetSuite, that was BlackLine. And it took them decades to, to get to a public offering because they were building the, the market and then they were, you know, they were growing at at at, at a reasonable scale. Um, if there is a market and you do have competition, your goal is to differentiate yourself from the competition. Is I call it the value wedge, where like what's why are you so different? than all these account payable solutions. What makes you different? Like, why should we continue the conversation? So it's really like if you're in a crowded market, it's really understanding where you fit within that crowded market that differentiates you from all the other competition. Right? That's mm-hmm. a, that's that's if you're in, in, in a in a market that is crowded, like cybersecurity, crowded, um, you know, CRM crowded but you have the king of the hill, which is Salesforce. You have NetSuite. You have Sage Intact. You got you know all these different uh, for other ERPs. But when you're going into, like for one of the, the companies I'm advising, like Upflow, it's like there are not many AR products out there. Like there are probably just a handful. And the reason why they went with the, the AR product only and staying in their sweet spot is because they don't want to compete with the APs, the account payable solutions. They just want the AR that that's it. So product market fit, fit for them was easy because there was only two, maybe two other competitors in the industry that were around for a little bit longer that they learned from. And when they started getting customers, they started to listen mm-hmm. to their customers and saying, how do we even get better? And how do we on the next twenty five customers we bring in? What does our product roadmap look like based off of the first twenty five customers we already brought in? What what are they saying? What can we add for additional functionality that helps you build out your roadmap? So, um, so bo- you, yeah.
2: Sorry to interrupt you. Um, so, so if you do that, um, at what stage when you look like a like a physician, yeah, outside you're standing outside of the patient. You have to determine, is he sick or not? In this case, is he healthy or not? Healthy means product market fit. So if you look at a startup and you need to find out, do they have product market fit or not? What are the, the things you look at? How do you
0: like know? I think you know based off of the, the multiple conversations you're having with prospects. Mm-hmm. And you're learning from these prospects what all their pains are. And you want to solve them. It's, it's that simple. When you look at the other company, uh, chassis, they're, they're building its own market, there's no, there's no tech, there's no technology out there. Like it, I haven't seen, I haven't seen it in my, they're they're saving
2: existing pain. no. So it would fit your, your prescription that you just said. I mean, if you hump on some costs with some prospects, they tell you their pain points. And they have a solution for that, even though the category may not exist. I mean, but the, the principle applies there as well, no?
0: It, yeah. So that, those are the two strategies. If you're in a market that there is competition yeah. here, you, you listen to your prospects, you understand what their, their current needs are, what value you bring into them. Like when you, when you like in this industry, you have to turn $1 into $5 cost savings for them to purchase software. They have to see a huge return on investment. Because, like I said earlier in in the call, the, the the office of the CFO is very much a cost center. It still is. They're trying to be a value added partner to everybody else, but you know the company's growing and and they're not, right? So you're trying to find technology to help automate a lot of their processes. So, um, but going back to what you said about chassis, it's it is it is its own new part of the market, right? Um, but at the same time, we know what we're solving. And we know the customers that we can help solve those issues. So there is a product market fit there. Now the job is to get 100 customers on the product, learn from them, and then as we start expanding, because we're only hyper-focused on just the partnership within NetSuite, we, we haven't even started tackling direct B2B, right? Because mm-hmm. we want to learn from that first. Proclo, it was it was one of those situations where they did a lot of work. They did a lot of hard work early on. They learned from their prospects. They built the technology. They listened. Um, they, they continue to do that today. So like when you think about product market fit, it's about what value you bring in your customer, what differentiates you from the competition. And then the biggest thing is how are you going to continue to bring value to them? Because AR, SaaS is ARR. It's not like you, you know, you sell and leave. You're married, right? You're fully married. Net retention, gross retention is so important. That is, that's the reason why these companies have 10 to 20 multiple, you know, on their value. So,
2: yeah. And, and you mentioned before um, the cap, the customer advisory board. Um, So what, what is the customer advisory board and how should you utilize
0: it? Customer advisory board from the software side, it is the head of technology. It is, should be the CEO, um, early stage cab. Um, it is, um, it's really those two people. I mean, there's nobody else. It's, it's like, okay, technology head of, head of the company, um, that are really trying to understand. I, I have 20 customers now we've deployed all 20, they've been on the solution for six months. Um, and you're, you're sitting here going, Oh my God, they're going to renew. And that's like the first indicator for product market fit is if you have a high net retention after a year, Mm -hmm. that's, that's when, you know, you're like, okay, no one's leaving this solution. They're, they're asking for more of it and we just need to give them more. So that's when you go from, a point solution to more of a platform focus where you're taking the pieces from them saying, okay, we can do this for P2P procure to pay, and we can do this for the treasury. Okay, great. They're already established on quote to cash. Let's just, that's why they're using us, but let's get the procure to pay team on it. Let's get the intercompany treasury team on it. And you know, that's, that's how you get sticky customers. Now that's the early cab. Now, the larger cab is when you might have 100 customers, 200 customers. You have usually like a VP of customer success. You have a, a VP of technology. Um, you have typically, depending on the B2B solution, um, you have kind of a you know an advisory head, right? And this is where either you do virtually, which we've been doing everything virtually for three years. We used to do them in person where we would do like, you know, in the United States, we do like a Boston or wherever and bring in like six customers in the local region and then do it over in San Francisco, bring in another six customers, do a full day uh, presentation of like, okay, how are they using us? What would they like to see more of? How can we support them better? You know, what are we doing that we're not seeing right now that will make your lives a lot better? because the goal was to always make our end users whether it was a coach, champion or economic buyer like superheroes. Like mm-hmm. we wanted to we wanted them to get promoted because they were using our solution to help the company really hit some of their KPIs. So small company, very intimate, larger company, you have more people within your company, your your software company listening to those customers.
2: And I, I just love what you said in terms of you want your, your, the person in that company that helped you win the contract that even, uh, the, so the champion and the economic buyer and the, the main stakeholders, you want them to be so successful through your solution that they get promoted. So that's a good frame yeah. of mind generally. And um, in these like customer, customer advisory board meetings, um, what is the reason that those people who are super busy, Give your company one whole day to participate and give you feedback.
0: How again, do you get them to, to the do partner. that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's busy, and, you know, more than ever, especially COVID created these 15 day work days. You know, we've all been through it for the last three years. I think um, if I were to answer that question now, I think people want to, you know, get out and meet people again so it, it it's not it's not a hard ask um we also entice them with like a free dinner or like you know just a night out just you know whatever it is we'll usually grab a we work or something or an office if we have an office in the city um and just do like presentations and the cool is that you know it, it's all about the relationship if they see value in your company and they want They want themselves to, to get more out of the solution to help their company, which again, puts them in a position for promotions, for accolades, for high fives, like all the things that makes their lives better because they're helping their company, they'll end up coming, right? I also like to get one, maybe one company that's struggling, maybe two to come as well. So they can see all these other presentations to say, oh my God, I had no idea. How did you do that? it turns into a therapy session. And, and you know the best part about this whole cap is that if I'm, if I'm the technology, I'm not talking at all, ever. I'm just listening. So we build up like a, a, a day for all the like six companies, seven, whatever, they come together. Each one does a presentation of here's where they here's where it was before. Here was our problem we were trying to solve. Here's what we chose, which was the solution. Here's how we solved it. Here's where we are today. Here's where we want to be. And usually, that here's where we want to be is where you start seeing. Oh my god! Like I, okay, this is part of our roadmap discussion now, right? Um, and then. The cool part is like you start seeing the companies that really didn't adopt it. Well, at the beginning, they knew their problem, but they didn't adopt it. Well, this goes back to what we were talking about before when it comes to people process product the people in the process. If that's not working, it doesn't matter what software you put in that company. It's, it's still not going to work. So seeing companies that are successful when it comes to the full scope of, I have my people. I have my process and I have the technology and here's what we want to do with it. Here's where we've been. It's very powerful. Um, and then at the end of that, we, we do something fun, bowling, uh, you know, whatever, like this is just like, you know, I've done some fun things in my, in my past, um, you know, whether it's a sporting event or something afterwards, and it's just fun just to build relationships with. And then they all walk away together with each other's information so they don't have to talk to me or my team. They can network with each other. And the best thing you can do is build an ecosystem of customers that, that can lean on each other um, if they have questions or concerns.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I like it a lot. And I will I will basically do that for I thought about it, um, but we never started doing it for our for our startup uh, for our company. Um, but it makes a lot of sense, and I have a similar experience. In we, what we do regularly is we do meetups for potential clients and existing clients, where we mix both. So we do it a little bit differently. The existing clients usually always, always talk about um, your solution and what you do without you asking them to do so, and uh, and they influence yeah. the potential clients uh, that are thinking about maybe buying you. So it's the same principle that you apply in having successful customers and customers that struggle and, and it drops off somehow and it gets those unsuccessful ones, maybe more open to, to your feedback and to get going. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I buy into the principle, but I have to apply it in the sense that you are doing it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, in the earlier stages, it's a trusted, uh, open dialogue meeting. And what I mean by that is when you bring prospects into it, there's NDA stuff. There's all that type of stuff when it's small, right? When, when you get larger and you do your user conference, you might do a couple per year depending on the geography. Um, we have done, at like, and these are like companies that were pre-public doing 90 to 110 million. That's when I saw like OK, we are going to bring some prospects in because it's more it's not a lot of personal information in the com- from the companies. It's really just a, a more of an overview of like problem. How do we solve it? How do we continue to grow? And those types of things that was more in the later stage companies yeah. where right. we brought in prospects and. Yeah. Um, um, what, so.
2: what I meant is more, like, I absolutely agree when they open up and talk about internal processes and, and whatnot, that, that is not for non-customers. That's for existing customers where you have, like, this confidentiality, yeah. confidentiality part. What I rather meant is um, a meetup where you don't let anyone present about confidential data. You just bring the target group together so that, um like, for example, yeah. CFOs. So you bring in 10 CFOs. Three of them are existing customers. Seven, seven of them not. And and you just provide value by 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 bringing them together by building a community where they can learn from one another and you facilitate more the the learning from other CFOs so that I don't miss anything and I do like I, I tick my boxes that I should tick as a CFO. So that is the main. It's goal. funny.
0: It's 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 funny. So that so that is on the direct side. So this is mm-hmm. so what we did was we did CFO standups.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So CFO standups were you, like you said, a couple customers, a lot of prospects, we would bring in speakers, uh, that were in the industry and they could have been on our technology, like in their larger company. And it was kind of like a roadmap discussion for a lot of CFOs. Like, here's where I was seven years ago. Here's where I am today. And like, how did, what were my, what was my decisions on how to grow this company? And it was more of like a, overall conversation and whether our usually our technology was part of the conversation but we would influence those prospects to uh to basically focus on the the progression of the sales stages so it was typically like sales stage three they've seen it they've done you know demos they've done discovery we've kind of built a case for them we would try to invite that sales stage three companies to a CFO um, stand up. We used to call them CFO stand ups, and, mm-hmm. and and that's how we won business. But Perfect. the talk track Perfect. was a lot different. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But uh, same principle. You bring people together <coughs> that are like minded, have the same problem, um, and and help them in some way, um, but also influence them uh, towards your solution. Yeah. I really yep. like it a lot. So we are we are already um, at the end of our of our conversation, Sean. Um, I, w- I have one more question before we dive into our five rapid fire questions. Um, in your point of view, because you you have so much experience now, you you work with so many different CEOs um, and you see so many different CEOs through stage uh, to capital. Um, what are the main characteristics that you see in successful CEOs that can scale from? I don't even have product market fit, but a great idea towards I can even go to IPO.
0: Um, for me, I think uh, it goes down to the person versus the product. Um, uh, I think um, a, a CEO that has, look, at the end of the day, a lot of CEOs think their product's going to change the world, which is great. We want them to, to, to be that confident. But I think what happens is um, they forget the humility side and the empathy side and the listening side. If they, if they have the right kind of mindset going into it that, look, we're not going to conquer the world tomorrow. We're going to do it. We're going to build this wall one rock at a time. And we're going to learn as we go. And it's going to be a constant rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Um, I think that is the ideal CEO that I've worked with in the past. That's been successful. Um, I also feel they need to have an executive presence. You know, I, I still think I'm old school. Like, I mean, depending on what you're selling, you can't just, and jeans and a t-shirt I know some the big googles of the world and all these other things they wear flip-flops and they do their thing but I think they need an executive presence because your first impression is the most important impression um and that's going to build trust and confidence and and they're going to listen right so that's important um I think a ceo needs a lot of energy I've seen I think a ceo has a different gear that I don't I don't have (laughs) <laughs> um where it's it's like their brain doesn't shut off like they they're constantly thinking but they also need to partition their time and if they have a team like the late night emails like stop the weekend emails just stop like people have lives and the beautiful thing about email is that you can time your email like if you have thoughts over the weekend like great like put it on an email and then hit the this email will go out on Monday morning at 8 a.m., right? Like, I, I do believe in work-life balance. Um, and then the other thing is that the, the last two things are, you know, part of energy is work ethic and having a great attitude, just like a positive attitude that, great, it didn't work out. No worries. Let's try this. Like, let's pivot here. Like, it, you know, I think a lot of um, CEOs – it's very rare to see like a product sales and marketing CEO, right? I've been fortunate enough to see a lot of great CEOs and the, 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 there's not the perfect CEO, Mm -hmm. but they all have specific characteristics of like, okay, I'm really good at this. So I'm going to stay in this lane. And I'm going to really let these other two C level people take care of those two things. And if they can collectively come together on decisions and listen to each other's challenges to try to solve them, that's where you start seeing a lot of good momentum for a lot of, you know, startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, you know, the last thing is like, we've talked about this whole, this whole program is uh, customers come first. I like it. It's if you really want to build, yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. If you want to build your ICP, which is your ideal customer profile? You gotta to listen to your customers. So, yeah. so
2: listen, yeah, uh, folks um, who listen to the show, you have to at the early stages. If you're the CEO, you you should talk to customers and also be part of some sales or all sales conversations. Um, best case, yeah, that's how you get yeah. to the uh, product market fit stage and can conquer the world later on, step by step. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um so now I have five rapid fire questions for you Sean. Um are you ready? Sure. I'm ready. Sure. Okay. So what do you do
0: to keep body and mind fit and sharp? It's a good question. Uh I have two beautiful young daughters. They keep me busy. Um I have a an executive wife who works for another big software company. She keeps me busy. So my mind is busy enough so there are things that i do uh that helps me kind of level set myself every morning i do uh i do meditation every morning i um i do some sort of activity every day i box i work out i go to yoga um i'm not getting younger so uh i do a lot of like physical therapy on my back (laughs) because that's where all the stress lives. But um, I do love to golf. I would say for me, it is it is a challenging sport mentally. But just whether it's just playing nine holes or 18 holes, like it gives you enough time to like think. Um, So I usually go super early in the morning and um, bang out around before the day starts or you know, if I get a weekend hall pass from my wife, that's, that's another way to do it as well. So that, those are kind of things that keep my mind and my body sharp. So I like, it. <laughs> um, and I, <clears throat> I mean, I'm not a good golfer, but I golf, uh,
2: from time to time. And it's like, it humbles at least me <laughs> because uh, yeah, you're the only one hitting yeah. this one ball and there's no other one responsible for whatever happens after that. So <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's, it brings honesty and it brings honesty to, it, put, it puts people in their place. Like I have the most confident friends in the world that they don't play a lot of golf. Like they're humbled by the end of that round. And, Definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Do you, do you have a favorite business book?
0: I do actually I'll show it to you. Oh, where is it? Here it is. Ah.
2: Yeah. Who moved my cheese? From whom is it? I cannot read it. Spencer, from, Spencer Spencer Johnson. Spencer
0: Johnson. Yeah. Cool. So I bought I buy this book for when I was in operating roles. I bought it for every manager, and then eventually every rep. Mm-hmm. And it focuses on um, how to deal with change in work and in your life. Because the most successful companies I've been a part of, I've been fortunate to be a part of, is you gotta be a chameleon and you have to accept change and always know changes around the corner. And how can you fit into the, the next move of your career, the next, you know, as companies grow, quotas increase, territory shrink. So you have to be very uh, versatile and I think some people forget that they just can't sit in the, the one place that they're, they've been at for, for years. Um, if they want to excel in their career <coughs> or their life. So
2: yeah, I'll have a look into this book and we, we put it into the show notes. And of course, also the two companies that you mentioned, we also put them into the show notes so that people can check oh, cool. out their websites. Yeah, of course. Um, do you have a favorite, uh, or do you generally listen to podcasts? And if yes, do you have a favorite one?
0: I do. Um, I was actually just sending this to a couple of the companies that I was, uh, I'm advising today. Where is it? It's, um, it's called the brutal truth. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's. Like today was like the secret to selling the hardest of hard in B2B sales. And uh, so it's called The Brutal Truth.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. We also put that into the show yeah. notes. Um, and who should be our next podcast guest and why?
0: Uh, uh, I think, have you done Mark Roberts yet? No. Okay. So Mark Mark Roberge is a brilliant brilliant person. He built out the sales accelerator formula. Uh, he's an author, um, Harvard grad, speaker, lecturer. Uh, he he helped HubSpot go from zero to a hundred million, mm-hmm. and then stay there throughout the public offering. Um, but he has an amazing uh, philosophy he's a math. He's a mathematician when it comes to like building sales, um, sales methodology, inbound, outbound marketing. Um, he really, he really nailed it. Um, he he continues to do it. Uh, he's speaking at Saster next week. I'll be out in San Francisco to see that. Um, but he's just an exceptional person and, um, Mm -hmm. He's, uh, you know, I learned from him all the time. So Mark Roberge, um, former CRO of HubSpot.
2: We definitely reach out to him. Do you know him personally or, um, do you know him through yeah. his work? Yeah. So yeah, no, let's, let's see personally. if he's willing, let's see if he's willing to join <laughs> us. Um, and now you can directly address our audience, anything we can
0: help you with Sean. Um, I know I, I just, you know, have fun, make money and, uh, and just enjoy the ride. That's, that's how I kind of live every day.
2: So nice
0: and work hard.
2: (laughs) (laughs) If people would like to get in touch with you, what would be the best way?
0: Um, I can, you know, uh, you can send me an email. Um, I have several emails, so we could figure out what that looks like, but I can put my contact information whether it's through whatsapp or through a text or i'll give you my cell phone i do a lot of whatsapp for a lot of my friends overseas and um and a lot of text here in the us so yeah so if you anybody wants to get in touch with me
2: yeah we can put it into the show notes and if people want to find you on linkedin they can find you with uh, sean green so s-h-a-w-n and then green like green um just like the color <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> So um, it was a true pleasure to to have you on our show, Sean. It's really great insights. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank, Thank you, Sammy. Appreciate it.
1: If you liked the show, please leave us a rating and subscribe to our podcast to never miss a new episode. Do you want to grow your B2B business, win new employees and drive sales with a podcast content engine? SaWu can help. Simply schedule a strategy call with our host Sami Gebele. Get in touch on LinkedIn or via Sawo.io. You can also find all contact details in our show notes. Thanks and see you next time.